0: anyone who's not Indigenous and is is genuinely interested in in learning more is to find that discomfort because everyone is human and when you can get past the discomfort there's humanity there. Part of that discomfort helped me actually just challenge my own kind of prejudices and what might have been there that I didn't even know about.
1: You're listening to Unsettled. Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of ideas, solutions, and respectful conversations. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, my co-host is George Lee, and our guest is Daryl Lagerquist. It is always a great honour to be asked to acknowledge the land we stand on and the peoples of this land. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, Métis Nation, Zone Number 4 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and you may be joining from another treaty region, another Métis Nation zone, unceded land, or a different area. We stand upon a land that carries the footsteps and hearts of many First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples that have been here for thousands of years and many generations. We would like to acknowledge our and their relationship with Mother Earth and the traumatic and oppressive history that they have been through. It is an interconnected relationship that we have with land spirit, but we're all relations and we all have an obligation to that relationship. This land has nourished and healed, protected and embraced us. And we're grateful to the Indigenous peoples that have been stewards of this interconnected relationship with Mother Earth and land spirit. We're all relations and as such, we all respect each other in our beliefs, but also our own individual relationships with Mother Earth and land spirit. And so from my heart and spirit to yours, I open this podcast in a good way.
2: Hello again, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, dropping on Thursday, August 11th, 2022. This episode marks the end of our sophomore season, but we'll be back soon, on September 30th, in fact, which is Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, and also Orange Shirt Day. Our guest this time is Daryl Lagerquist, And he's a settler and an ally, as we say on this podcast. And he's also Senior Manager, Strategic Business Advisory with the City of Vancouver. Our conversation with Daryl serves as what print journalists might class as the nut graph or a nut graph. It summarizes and provides some new perspectives on many of the things we talked about in earlier episodes and spins them off into the future. The three of us talk about the internal and very personal conundrum of being both a proud Canadian and someone who deeply dislikes the colonial practices that got us here, many of which persist. As a settler, knowing your own ancestry well enough to envision your forebears coming in contact with Indigenous peoples and communities, what was that like for all involved? Being responsible without being at fault? Recognizing and standing up to everyday racism? in all its forms and degrees. The importance of being genuine as an ally and as a project partner or consultant when working with Indigenous communities. Other ways to be an ally and to live truth and conciliation. Future Casting Canada, what do seats at the leadership table or in circle look like for a nation of so many nations? And much more. Do keep in mind, for the sake of context, that this conversation took place back in February. One other quick note, Daryl paraphrases Chief DeLorum of the Kallus' First Nation in Saskatchewan and adds the proviso, don't quote me on this. Well, we've checked, and Darryl's indirect quote is, indeed, an accurate representation of many of the things Chief DeLorum has said publicly. Okay, let's go.
1: We're here today with Daryl Lagerquist, who's a business and policy analyst and consultant who's worked extensively with Indigenous communities. Daryl and I go back a few years, and we've been trying to connect for a while to get him on the show. So welcome, Daryl, to our podcast.
0: Thank you guys so much. Very happy to be here today.
1: So in 2007, Daryl came west from Ontario, which is where he got his first degree, a Bachelor of Arts in Public Policy and Administration from York University. Later he built upon that at the Haskane School of Business in Calgary to get his MBA. He's worked for several consulting companies and the governments of Ontario and Alberta, and he has a perspective from both inside and outside of the government. His career is taking him from Urban Systems, Ballard, MNP, and now the city of Vancouver. For MNP, he worked in the cannabis, Aboriginal, and public sector niches. And for Ballard, he led a team of professionals working on engagement with Treaty six and seven and eight clients. So obviously, there's some interest for us in those areas and the work that he's done. These days, Daryl is with the City of Vancouver, where he's a senior manager and strategic business advisor. All right, Daryl, that's the crack at your quick bio. Is there anything else you'd like to add to it?
0: That's great. I should have recorded that because I need that sometimes. I maybe want to add, I'm joining you today from the traditional and unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples here in, in the City of Vancouver. I'm just very humbled to be on the podcast today and joining you from these lands, and so thank you guys for for inviting me um, on today. I, th- I think there's so many things I want to talk about, but I, in terms of of my my resume, I think you nailed it. Maybe just a bit of background before that. Um, I was born and raised in in Brampton, Ontario, which is the uh, Treaty 19 area and the traditional homeland of the Mississaugas of the Credit. I come from a an ancestry of settlers earliest records that we have from our family is roughly around the uh, sometime before 1857 settling in in the region of Peel and so of course you can imagine those pre-confederation times must have been very confusing for indigenous peoples and and certainly one of a lot of growth and and at that time that created I'm sure quite a bit of of dichotomy in our world that we still see it today yeah as Jessica mentioned I, I moved in 2007 out west and that's really when I started my journey in, in understanding Canada's history, in particular related to First Nation communities. As someone who is a settler, I'm, I'm a proud Canadian, and, and I'm living in a dichotomy, if I can put it that way. I am. Very, very proud, like I mentioned, but I also understand the somber history and, and the work that's ahead for all of us. And so it presents these competing emotions, especially the last year, I would say.
1: Just a common font on what you just said this tension between being proud, yet being aware of somber history. We've talked a lot about that on the podcast. And I think George and I really both understand that very much. But it makes me think of one of the elder teachings that I had when I struggled with some of the ways that I was raised or the things that happened to me as a sixty scooper and things like that. What the elder said to me is that you can hold both feelings together. It's, mm-hmm. it's not one or the other. Like it's not good and bad. Yep. It's all together, right? And so I can love my family, but hate some of the things that happened to me being part of that family. And it's the same with Canada. We can love Canada for some of its things, but we can also hate it for yep. some of the things that were quite oppressive. And that's part of the beauty and the the challenge of the life that we live in is being able to walk in balance. And that's really what the elders uh, have taught me that has really resonated with me.
0: That's great. And I totally agree. My experience in learning of Indigenous history in Canada was one very much from the settler side. And I just want to preface that. I come from a great family that always had a reverence for Indigenous communities and, and First Nations people, but reverence that also didn't really understand the full history and didn't understand the responsibility that that we bear today for some of the the things in the past. So I'm just grateful that I didn't have any racism in my family that spoke to that. I know a lot of folks, as I moved out West and started to meet my cohort, same age group, I found there to be a lot more racism in the prairies. The reason that's important for me in my journey is I was kind of stumped by it. And I was stumped because... I hadn't experienced it. I have one fond memory. My my family had taken me to one of the first Jesuit settlements in Ontario. It's called St. Marie Among the Hurons. And it's it's in just near Midland, Ontario, which is north of Barrie, probably about an hour and a half from Toronto. You know, you go there and, and it's it's a mission and you're learning various different things, but you're learning from a settler perspective of course, as as an adult and learning um, more about the history, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, okay, here's this story that was presented to me as a child of very positive relationships. And I'm not, certainly those existed. There likely were very positive and mutually beneficial relationships. But what's missing in that story is the terror, the inhumanity that existed, especially as we started to approach confederation. That's where my journey began. And respect and, and, and reverence for Indigenous communities in Canada. And I moved west in, in 2007 and started to get more of a professional relationship, if I can put it that way, with Indigenous communities. I worked for Alberta Municipal Affairs, and I worked in an area not connected to Indigenous communities, but I got exposed to it. So I worked for assessment and tax, not glamorous or anything like that, but very real and very important for Municipalities to function. And in 2011, I think we all remember the Slave Lake wildfires that occurred and, and destroyed hundreds of homes, both in the Saw Ridge First Nation and in Slave Lake. And I was brought in on the initial response team about two days after the fire had gone through town. And we're, you know, we're flying in on, at that time, the government of Alberta had Dash 8s, and there was a group of us on board. And there was um, a group of folks from the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. They have a First Nations liaison team. And so they were joining us on the flight. And I just had an impactful conversation with, and I feel terrible because I forget his name, <laughs> with a gentleman who was going up to Sawridge to help them with their emergency operations center and coordination between the municipalities and the province. I found that conversation very impactful and just thinking through institutionally everything that's happening in this moment. And then I get up there and you're in the emergency operations center and you're seeing those First Nation liaisons, you're seeing the local leaders from the municipality and Saw Ridge First Nation come together and coalesce around this emergency. And it was very, you know, it was moving for me because we have this history, but we can galvanize and come together when our communities are in crisis. We need to move beyond that, obviously, but there's ability to work and it was evident in those wildfires to see the communities come together evacuate people set up emergency social services together and if you remember there weren't any deaths from from slave lake which which is a miracle where am i going with this i think i know we can have a better future and we're starting on that path and there's so many steps we need to take but that was just one example that was really impactful in my time with the government of alberta that Still resonates strong with me today. And then after that, I had about seven years with the government of Alberta, and then I, I joined a professional service firm in Edmonton. And I was originally hired to work in the municipal space. And at that time, all municipal governments were kind of constrained, and so there wasn't a lot of professional work in that space. But there certainly was a need for my skill set, which was mainly around analysis, a policy analysis at that time, business analysis, community engagement. And I was asked if I would be willing to work on a strategic plan with uh, one of the muskwiches bands in Treaty 6, just south of Edmonton. And I thought, great, absolutely, let's broaden my horizons here, and ended up working with their local leadership, chief and council, to develop a five-year strategic plan. And for the first time in my life, hearing the stories to this day that are carried on from hundreds of years ago of colonialism and systems that are established to really subvert Indigenous communities. And it was so emotional because you're in planning sessions talking about housing and healthcare and education and substance abuse and, and mental health challenges. It was very overwhelming. And so I was thrown right into it. I, I loved working with that local leadership. I was hooked with, <laughs> with working with Indigenous communities from, the, from that day on. And what I mean by that is, there was a level of of trust that was built through that process. That was still very little, but it was there. And after day three of of doing planning sessions all day with this community, you know, they're patting you on the back and making jokes about you, and and <laughs> and it felt so welcoming. And it just, I took up the torch, so to speak. And those two moments, both of the government of Alberta and then in professional consulting were the two moments that galvanized kind of my my next seven years and actually eight years, I guess, working with Indigenous communities.
2: You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee. My co-host is Jessica Vandenberg. And our guest is Daryl Lagerquist.
1: that just I think is important to amplify and just that resonates with me. A couple is the contrast between working with municipalities and nations Mm -hmm. and settlements because there's a a lot of big governance differences there, but also what you said about the feeling of working with chief and council and uh, Indigenous governance bodies and things like that, that it is so welcoming because Mm -hmm. I know in all the work that I've ever done with communities on reserve with Métis settlements, Métis nations, like it is so welcoming. You are part of the family. They yep. they help guide you. Sometimes, um, sometimes it gets a little heated, but <laughs> it's like any any family does, <laughs> and you navigated <laughs> through it. But the support is still there, and it's just you know a lot of times you can get lost and painted in the picture of the socioeconomic issues and yep. um, all of this. But there is still at the core of it kinship and family and culture and there's so many beautiful things at it. And it's important to paint that full spectrum when talking about this as well.
3: Yeah, I could, just, if I could just chime in there too. You know, a lot of the people we interviewed, the subject of humor comes up and it just came up with you. Obviously, I don't want to generalize, but it seems to come up with a lot of Indigenous communities. You know, when we spoke to the uh, CEO of the Discovery Place in, in Prince George, and she spoke about how she became such a part of the uh, the First Nation family and how, they played with her and how they put up with her mispronunciations at times and things like that (laughs) and and brought her into exactly what you said you know and and what Jessica said brought her into the family and I remember that from my childhood too and the indigenous friends I had that there was always this gentle humor that is kind of picking on you in a very light way that's not bullying it's just (laughs) appreciating your humanity and your ability to make mistakes You know. And and live with those mistakes. It's so welcoming and it's so warm. It's the kind of thing you have within a family, as
1: Jessica said. And it's just uh, tapping into that core emotion of joy, right? And I think about, uh, because I like to laugh out loud, like I'll laugh (laughs) out loud in a movie, I'll laugh out loud wherever something's funny, I'm going to laugh out loud. I remember, George, uh, when we worked at Pega when Ruby worked for me as well, like her and I would just be like belly laughing and everyone's kind of <laughs> looking at us. And I'm like, I don't know, it's funny. <laughs> and it's, like, it,
0: yeah. <laughs> There's no comparison, actually. And, you know, with that, for me as a, you know, a non-Indigenous white guy, there were definitely moments of discomfort, right? And I, I, I challenge anyone who's non-Indigenous and is is genuinely interested in, in learning more is to find that discomfort. Because when you, you know, you guys touched on it, right? Like everyone is human. And when you can get past the discomfort, there's humanity there. Part of that discomfort helped me actually just challenge my own kind of prejudices and what might have been there that I didn't even know about. You know, there's a lot of work <laughs> in the last bit and certainly more work for me to do. I By no means uh, uh, am I a, a sage in this journey. But yeah, like I think the discomfort is important you know, you expect discomfort in all aspects of your life, right? Like this, these are things that are really challenging your person.
1: And that's the thing, right? Like, and this is where a lot of our conversations go to, how do you take those first steps of the calls to action? And Mm -hmm. often it's an internal journey along with an external one and really coming face to face with your own bias and stereotypes and prejudice and You know, we've talked, I've shared a lot of my personal journey on this podcast and some of the things that have happened to me. And you know, of course, Daryl, we've talked about these things too. When we think about labeling these things, like what I say to anybody, like guaranteed the people who have done things that have hurt me didn't wake up that morning, say like, I'm going to be racist today and I'm going to go do this to Jessica. Like guaranteed they woke up thinking, oh, I'm going to do what I can. It's like, there's so much that lives in that unconscious bias realm. Yeah. And again, it's coming face to face with that. Yeah, I've done like even myself, I know I've done things I'm not overly proud of, um, but you learn from them and you correct them and you apologize. and You learn how to forgive and you you learn how to walk in a good way, walking with those values, which is so, so very important.
0: Yep, yeah, 100 percent.
1: Daryl, I know like you and I have um, done a lot of work together over the years and we've worked with nations together, settlements together. And you have a really good approach, at least from where I sit. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what really motivates you. How do you counter this idea of saviorism or being cautious around tokenism? Because I know a lot of folks, as they're starting their truth and reconciliation journeys, or are wanting to be allies. That's something that comes up quite often. I don't mm-hmm. know if you can comment on that a bit.
0: I'm definitely gonna be a little rough around the edges here so <laughs> i think and I, and I think that that's one lesson with working with indigenous communities is you know be your true self and if that causes discomfort that triggering response of discomfort means you need to look for something there's something there that you need to to work on like for me there's a couple things like i it goes back to me being kind of a proud canadian in our constitution and the agreements we we agreed to, you know, when when my ancestors came to this land. And I think walking into, let let me back up a little bit. Jessica, you and I have talked a lot about how there's the European economy going back whatever centuries ago, but there was a whole other world here of, of hundreds of nations operating and trading and fighting and doing everything that was happening in Europe just here. And we, European settlers, came here and there were dozens of agreements made and promises for peace and prosperity and sharing of wealth and resources and and learning from one another. And I think when I go into a community, that is always top of mind for me and that connection to what that means as a settler Canadian. And, and that, I think, has provided me with a bit of, I'm going in a little humbled with some respect, well, with a lot of respect. And also combine that, So that kind of feeling with knowing the history, so knowing all of the the transgressions against those agreements and the, you know, the hoodwinking done for years and to this day by governments on First Nation communities. And that took a lot for me to, you know, learn from people like Jessica, others reading, being in a room of 100 community members and speaking about something such as housing or water that's very, very inherent in communities and and being brought to task what a humbling experience like you know that resulted in me getting a hug from two elders and crying i don't know if i can pinpoint one thing i think if there's if there's two things i i would you know implore people to do is know your family history and try and tie that back to a time in canada that connection to the Indigenous people at that time and what might be happening and, and trying to really put yourself in the shoes of those people. And I know this is very hard and, you know, a lot of people struggle with that and it's easier said than done for sure. And thinking of the things that have happened from generation to generation. And if you can connect your own personal history to that through family and trying to think of that time and, bearing the responsibility of of today, I think you go into working with Indigenous communities or or having a conversation with an Indigenous friend with a little more respect and just a good foundation of openness. And then couple that with the the real things that have have happened. And I think that provides you with some compassion and just a great place to start that journey.
3: We had one person on here, an AT person, who said he had a friend who said I didn't feel I could really understand truth and reconciliation until I dated my own family back to yes. the point where we were in touch with the land ourselves. Yes. And what was our relationship with the land, and then th- that helped inform his own
0: uh, his own journey. So that
3: fascinated. Oh, that's me
1: that's a good yeah. comment, sorry. I don't yeah. remember that one, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But
0: that, that certainly helped me too, right? So that's, I totally resonate with what he's saying there. Yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. great.
1: You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm Jessica Vandenberg. My co-host is George Lee, and our guest is Daryl Daryl Lagerquist.
3: haven't really who just because they know jessica or because they know me and they haven't really known what to do or they haven't been particularly inclined to do anything and so when they hear what other settler people are saying about being an ally and what it means and how simple it is to just kind of edge your way in a simple thing is you know at christmas time start buying indigenous gifts i mean just take a little step that way you don't know any indigenous people support an indigenous business in yep. a little way I mean there's all these little steps that, that people can take in their lives
0: when Jessica first told me about the podcast I thought like it, it's so needed and I know there's a few other podcasts that I've stumbled across I'm very happy that this has started and and I hope it blows up <laughs>
3: like, yeah 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 totally. yes, so do we that's the that's the ultimate yeah. goal. Yeah
0: the spirit of treaty and the spirit of sharing the land. Like this is an example of merging, you know, different worldviews and, and the history together. And like, it's awesome. Right. It's just great to hear all that. Yeah. You know, I know lately ally and, and, you know, it's been thrown around a lot and I, I don't know, am I an ally? I think I am. I've definitely been in conversations with people where I've stopped them in their tracks. and I think this is an important thing in being an ally. Saying, hey, you know, like that is whether it's offensive or not understanding the history, or you know, people in my my cohort have said before, like, oh, I'm you know, I'm sick of hearing it. That was so long ago, and we need to move on. We need to move on. And first of all, it's not that long ago. I mean, 1996 was when the last residential school closed. So so there's that. Not to mention the centuries of institutional. Oppression that's been built into government systems, that's been built into the, the welfare systems on reserve, the education system, the healthcare system that they have no understanding of. I get upset, triggered my back against the wall when people say stuff like that. It may not be your fault. You know, it may not be my fault or your fault, Jessica or George, your fault. Chief DeLorme at Cowessus said this very well, and it really resonated with me that, and and don't quote me here, his words are going to be a bit different, but we, we inherited the time we're in. And what happened in the past is not our fault, but it's our responsibility today. That is truly how I approach my work, specifically with Indigenous communities, but even just in life, like accepting responsibility for your life is a huge thing that there's tons of psychological work on that, right? Bad things happen. And I think fault is an easy way to kind of get out of your own searching and, and your own responsibility for it. You're trying to lay blame or, or lay fault.
1: Like there's so much in just what you said there that there's so much in there. Because we try very hard not to set the tone of shame, blame or guilt, right? Because yeah. I agree with you. We're playing with the... The hand that we've been dealt in the time we've been dealt it in. And I agree, it's not my fault and it's not your fault. It's not George's fault. (laughs) It's not our fault. (laughs) But I agree with this idea of responsibility. And that is at the backbone of all of these calls to action is that we all need to take responsibility. And it really brings me back to the elder teachings of the seven generations, right? We carry the bundles of the last seven generations. We have responsibility for that. We need to respect that. We need to honor it. And we need to understand that whatever we do impacts the next seven generations. So why would we not want to take up the calls to action and make this nation of nations a better, more peaceful place, a respectful place, bring it back to a place of reciprocity, a place of healing? Because I agree with you. So many people think that this stuff is in the past. No, like every Indigenous person that I know walks with some sort of trauma. Like I have complex PTSD from all the stuff that I've been through. Yeah. Incidents that are still occurring up until today, right? And, and it just is infuriating when people think it's in the past. Yeah. And uh, I have a really great support network. Uh, it's taken me a while to build my support force around me as I work through a bunch of these things. But a friend <laughs> sent me a message the other day that I just want to read. So he said, one thing I've learned is that some people walk a path in life that is more difficult than the path of others that surround them. And it's difficult to see why that would be the case. This people on the difficult path are usually stronger, more capable, and resilient than others. And they can weather storms that would crumble others. And he says to me, I see you as one of these people, and it's a fact that makes me admire you. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's taken me a long time to resolve how you heal these really negative experiences that happen, but they will never go away right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that people have to understand. People's experiences in residential school, in the 60s scoop, the racist experiences that happen, they don't leave us ever. But we have to manage our lives and what they look like now because of that and still run the race in whatever settler systems and frameworks and capitalism world that we have. And we have to run it carrying this heavier bundle.
3: What I hear is a real deep form of apathy that empathy is not just about what the person is right now, right in front of you. Oh, I emphasize with them, they stubbed their toe. The little child stubbed a toe and hurts now. It's not just about now. It's about those historical roots that we, as, as you pointed out, that we share. And that's part of the whole empathetic thing. So if we're going to take any credit for where we are as human beings because of our ancestors. We also have to give the credit and the understanding to other people about where they are in their life based on those things. And the other thing you talked about, you know, the cooperation, one of the things that uh, that Jessica is always correcting me on is I kind of have this raw, raw entrepreneurial white guy thing that yes, we just need to be better partners as we exploit this land. But she always reminds me of Georgia, not about ownership, it's about stewardship. It's not about dividing the land up as far as owners go. It's about how we all act as stewards. And I think that's one of the real keys that if we, as we re-envision this nation as a nation of nations, if we can look at our partnership as there are good things on in each approach that we can work together on. We should not be trying to just be all oh, making up for the bad things we did by continuing to treat Mother Earth the way we're treating her. We need to incorporate the incredible wisdom that there is within Indigenous communities in, in Canada and the, the understanding of the, the lands and the places that they come from and what their histories have done before we arrived. So I, I just love that idea of a real yeah. uh, melding of everything.
1: The important part of that is that it's the elder teaching of, uh, the Cree teaching of Wokotwin, that the teaching of all my relations. It's not just the reciprocal relationship between settlers and indigenous or industry and community, it's also land spirit. Land spirit has a seat at the table. And that is the crucial part of it, that land in the Eurocentric worldview is something you can own. It's something you can divide up, you can exploit, you can destroy, or you can plant whatever you want on it. But land spirit is one of our relations and we are the land. And that—that that is the piece that we got to remember in all of this, the teachings of natural law. That's what the elders teach us.
0: I'm glad you brought up Worldview. One other project that came to mind was working with the Alberta Ministry of Environment, and they were very interested in two different worldviews, right? that are coming together to do environmental monitoring. And so you can imagine the Western way of doing it is very scientific and you know water samples and sensors and and all these other things, right? But on the other side of that coin is millennia of indigenous teachings about the environment, about the land that to this day, is still not intertwined with our science, quote unquote. I'm, I'm feeling optimistic, though, because there are active movements within government and, and outside to bring that work together, which is exciting.
1: It is in this idea of two-eyed seeing, this idea of seeing a similar kind of parallel to gender-based analysis plus tools and things like that is being able to put on different worldview hats and, and look at a problem or an issue or a subject from different perspectives, and then come together. And the thing is, what I always think about when it comes to the Indigenous ways of understanding natural law and understanding nature and environment is that it is the phenomena that is experienced or observed is seen um, the same, whether it's by a science lens or an Indigenous lens, it's the same phenomena. It's just how the information is captured and transferred is different. Yes. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
2: You're listening to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of hopes, dreams, stories, and ideas. I'm George Lee. My co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guest is Daryl Lagerquist.
3: So I want to make this really difficult kind of segue now into the deep pain there's been for Indigenous communities and thoughtful other Canadians with the truth about residential schools being revealed in such graphic and, and tragic ways. And and I'm just wondering what your reaction was and is.
0: I, I mean, I feel like I can't even characterize it because you know, here I am yeah, settler, non-indigenous, the pain felt so real and especially the initial discussion. And, and, and these communities have known this, right? Like I've heard stories from elders too, like, Oh, you know, driving out in the community. Oh, there's, we think there's a gravesite over here. Like, and you're, you're just God smacked when the the recoveries are made. (sighs) There's a lot of truth that still needs to happen here is to catalog every community in this country and to make sure that all recoveries are made. Like that really is fundamental to one's own journey. When, when mourning a loss of, of someone in your family, I can go back multiple generations and see the gravestones in my hometown you know sorry and when that happened like i I made a post about it and it was chief delorum at again back to responsibility versus fault and and all that and he really it really resonated with me because i had just been home and and i do go to the cemetery every time i'm at home because you know my grandparents are there and great-grandparents are there and great great grandparents are there and to imagine like not knowing where your family is not having a place to reflect with that family member is just I I can't imagine it so it's like you know we really need people to start thinking about it putting themselves in that And, like, really, you know, it should make you upset. It should make you very upset. It should make
1: you upset. Yeah. Because the whole thing, (laughs) like, like, you can just imagine if you're a parent and if you're not a parent, even just you when you were a child, being ripped away from your family, put into a school, who knows where. I mean, at that time, you didn't have regular communication. You don't know where they've gone or who's looking after your kids. And, And then they're being horrifically abused in order to erase their whole identity. And then if they were, to not survive that abuse and then just they just don't come home one day (laughs) like i don't understand why more people aren't upset about this right like i i don't understand it
0: i i think we need to uncover the, the the whole truth you know there needs to be some serious effort put behind this both people resources and monetary resources. And I, 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 I hear that's coming. And because I think for me in, in helping really me in my journey, understanding the truth was very important to be able to, to bring, you know, to change my worldview, you know, to, to change how I was seeing things before learning about all these tra- tragedies. So I, I think we need to make sure every single family members recovered and as much as possible identified
3: i have to admit even though i i knew that these things had happened i mean i had heard the stories i understood intellectually that these things had happened but this canada day i mean this was the line for me because of that where before as much as i knew canada was flawed and so many things have happened in the last few years. I mean, we're at such a difficult place for so many reasons, not least of which we see going on south of the border with the polarization and the just the awful oversimplifying of humanity and demonizing of so many things. But I I felt Canada was intrinsically good, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think even though I knew about the residential schools and I knew that there were awful things that happened, but this just put it into my heart in such a visceral way that it really did change Canada Day for me. I will not have another Canada Day where I don't focus on what is going on in our Indigenous communities. To me, that's an annual marker not for celebrating Confederation. It's an annual marker for, well, every day is a a marker for it, but it's another day to check in on the Indigenous people in your lives who are going through this, and overall the policy and the uh, the public acceptance or understanding of what's gone on in our residential schools across the country.
1: And Daryl, I remember us talking about this like years ago already, like, um, like how, do, yeah. how do we navigate Canada Day and how do we yeah. navigate Flag Day? And, and then this year also, um, this past year, also saw the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day.
2: Yes. Um, being held
1: on September 30th when Orange Shirt Day is and and our prime minister going <laughs> off and doing what our prime minister did. Oh my and, goodness. And I don't know, do you want to comment on any of that, <laughs> oh,
0: Well, I just, I wonder who his advisors are. Like, I mean, there's so many steps to get the prime minister on a private Canadian forces jet to cross the country. You would think there was more just tact involved in that. You know, I, I hope now. I mean, unfortunately, it took him doing that for people to realize, like, what the heck were we thinking? Uh, let alone the prime minister, but all the other senior officials involved in moving the prime minister. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, um, he, he had to, and he had an invite. Kamloops, know, like, <laughs> like it just, you know, there's so many things and, that just, yeah, just have disappointed me and. And I know we don't get too political on this podcast or anything because that's, uh, well, it's just tough space to go into. <laughs> but
3: I We, have, we was... have enough on our plate, I think. <laughs> I think
1: so too. <laughs> I don't know. George, where do you want to go from here? <laughs>
3: uh, what's what's gone on and uh this is sort of related i suppose is what kind of canada do you see down the road if we do figure this out how to honor the treaties and how to actually work together in this country what do you see your kids and their kids and seven generations like what is there ahead
0: for us I I like this question because it's future casting, so to speak, but I I think we have a lot of education to do first and foremost. Like I didn't learn about residential schools until I was 22 or 23 when I moved out West. I had no clue, like none. I had this picturesque museum experience. Oh, everyone got along and it was great. And here's Canada now. And so I think that that needs to be introduced and I know it is, it's slowly coming, but I think it needs to be introduced fairly heavily at a younger age. And I, I think we should really be encouraging Canadians to wherever they live or where they were born or both understand the history, the, the specific communities that were once there and where they are now and that history there. I think that's that's a big first step. If I can see a, a future Canada, and I I had an elder once. At Saddle Lake Cree Nation, just northeast of Edmonton, we got talking about all this. And he said to me, You know, it's a wicked problem, Daryl, quote unquote. There's, there, it's so intertwined that it's going to take generations to untwine. And so the first step is obviously education. But I would love to see, and I think I've said this to Jessica before, putting aside all the investment that needs to happen in infrastructure and, and other things in indigenous communities like that, that needs to happen. But like certainly anyone should be able to walk anywhere in Canada and turn on the tap and have a glass of water. That shouldn't even be like, it. Should, we shouldn't even be thinking about that actually. But I would love to see a Canada where, and I recognize there's 600 and some odd nations in, in Canada. So it might be hard to do this, but I think of a time when the prime minister goes with an indigenous leader to the United Nations and addresses global institutions. And Canada is seen as a nation of nations. And, you know, that's probably going to take I I would think well over a hundred years to get to that point where I don't think the work will ever be done, but where it's it's starting to feel that you know we we can be proud if if that's the way to to put it.
1: And this yeah. is a good point because I I, uh, I host a lot of things throughout my work and throughout my personal life. But we hosted an ally panel back in December. And one of our Métis female leaders that were part of this panel, we asked everyone what they thought reconciliation was. And she said reconciliation to her was a feeling, a feeling Mm -hmm. that you are honored and respected, feeling that you have an equal seat at the table, a feeling that people understand and see you for who you are and recognize what you have gone through to get to that point. And that is what that makes me think of. That when we get the country to a place where everyone is feeling respected and it's reciprocity that's really there. But one, I know talking with other friends on this subject and things like that, you know, we always imagine crazy ideas. But one of them is that the capital of Canada move around the country and maybe one day it sits on treaty land. You know, that would be quite a huge step. right?
0: I would love to see that. Yeah, that would be incredible, actually. What you just mentioned there, Jessica, like that's how I think of it it, as a feeling. But then you said a seat at the table, quote unquote, like it should just be, you know, like there's no turning our past. The past has happened. Right. We settlers are here. Canada was created, quote unquote, in 1867. But a seat at the table, like a visible seat of governing this land, and 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 the regional differences that occur, and and I, yeah, there's no other way to sum it up actually than a feeling that that we've hit it. Um,
1: For sure, and, and and maybe it's not even a table in the future. Yeah, like maybe we go back to the circle because the, yes. the power, the power is in the circle, right? And the circle can extend much as 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 many people are are there. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: seems to me. That when you feel something, you know that it's actually happening. Maybe that's the step beyond tokenism, where you've got tokenism and you think, oh. yeah, I'm here at maybe not that yeah. table but or that circle, but I'm over here and, I'm, and I have a role so that a box can be ticked. Oh. But do I feel like I'm really part of what's going on? That I'm not just addressing a power structure, that I'm within it as part of the decision making process. The other thing I would just like to quickly touch on is that that is a very tricky thing that you talked about, Daryl, is just that massive number of nations and how are they all represented because they all are different. But I would submit that that's the problem we have with all communities in Canada. And there are ways around it where there are groups that represent groups that represent groups. There's a way of funneling different nations' perspectives into different forms of leadership and everything like that. So I don't think that's an impossible hurdle.
0: I agree. I mean, that's the beauty of Pluralism, right? Is that and I, I think the wicked problem, the seven generations, you know, every generation is is gonna move the dial, right? And I think we're in the long game here. Although it is very easy to go back very quickly, too, right? With ignorance and and with unwillingness to learn, very easy to go back. And so I I just hope folks educate themselves and define their principles and learn the past and how it, it was. Contrary to their principles, and awakening, and saying, "Oh my goodness!" Like taking those first few steps as, as a person are key, and I, I think we're we are getting there. And I, you know, I work for an organization now, uh, the City of Vancouver, where that is paramount. It's very refreshing to have that from the top down. You know,
1: and this is so and, important, right? And, and it's also yeah. important. I just want to pause a second that. I know we've talked a lot about First Nations, but just to recognize that we also have Métis and Inuit, and and that their journeys with this country have been very different. And we don't mean to dismiss them in our conversation here. I just want to make sure that we point that out on the podcast. But also this idea of making it priority, right? Uh, As having a discussion this week around it, like so many organizations, the government, everybody says this is priority, yet, you know, resources aren't put against it or, no action is done. They produce another report. We have a million commission <laughs> reports. And that's great. Stop reporting on it. Like, just go go make some changes. Make some policy changes. Replace certain leaders. Zero tolerance for racism. Like, there, yes. there's so much that you can do right now, today, especially if you hold an authority leadership position. But even in a day-to-day life, And we talk a lot about the calls to action here, just to circle back right to the beginning of this podcast is that every day you can just do little things. And it's those little things that add up to bigger change.
3: You know, you said the words, you know, just just don't be racist as an organization. Don't be racist as an individual. And you know what? Call it out. I've learned where before I just let it slip by, I call it out now. I don't need to be part of that team that's going to be racist or that team that's going to let the racist comment slipped by that's not my team you know and I'm comfortable with that in my own skin so yeah. I'm gonna say something now you know and I think that's part of being it's, an ally for too. me
1: as a as an indigenous person like that's the like I'm grateful so much for when people speak up for me because I'm tongue-tied in the situation <laughs> I'm just like I can't believe that happened like I can I remember like, I remember so many things happening. And I think I've talked about coming to a hotel on a ski trip and somebody in front of me says, like, why are the doors locked? Well, to keep out the drunk Indians. Or I've been at places where I've been thrown a pair of mittens as a prize. And one is a cowboy and one's a dead Indian. Like, things like that happen. Oh my. But I'm I'm just so grateful for the friends who are with me who say something in that moment because I don't know what to say. <laughs> And I did, like I just don't know what to say when it happens to me. If it happens to somebody that I witness, I can speak up. But when it's happening to me, I just don't know what to say. But what's really resonated with me, George, is one of our past guests, Lydia Tornberg, when we asked about allyship with her conversation. And she says, as an ally, sometimes you stand in front of somebody and sometimes you stand uh, mm-hmm. beside somebody, and sometimes you stand behind them. And it's knowing your position in the situation either amplify or protect or to walk with. And, and that really has stuck with me.
0: That is such a powerful way to think of it because it helps you kind of gauge allyship versus tokenism too. knowing the right place. And I I mean, that's a constant learning. You learn through action though, right? So that's that's the biggest thing. Just on the topic of speaking up against, um, you know, things that are said that are just completely wrong an interaction with someone I, I care for very much talking about rights, specifically indigenous rights. And the comment just flew out of his mouth, like, well, well I don't want them taking my rights, you know, so that's what worries me. And <laughs> I, just, I didn't even know what to say. And my response was, you know, I don't think you know enough about rights in the history of what's happened to even be able to speak on it. And that was it. That ended the conversation. And this is someone I I really, in my family, I really care for. And so I I haven't revisited that. And We need to in the right way. But, you know, it's moments like that where you just kind of challenge people in your family if they say things that are ignorant or racist and in your circle do go a long way, I think.
1: For sure. And I wonder if he or she was speaking more along the lines of privilege, like, um, are you going to take my comfort, (laughs) all my comforts? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm not too sure.
0: Neither am I. I think it was a comment made in ignorance.
3: The whole white privilege thing. I mean, I've got a relative. I, I it was on Facebook, so because it wasn't a personal interaction, I didn't I didn't say anything. But uh, the, the idea that you know a typical white Albertan who's been through their life and had no real roadblocks put up in front of them because of their race or their color of their skin or their religion. And to say, well, I don't have a white privilege card. I've never had to show it. When I did all this work, you know, and my response to that is that that is so true. You don't have a card. You don't need one. You're just a walking white privilege card. <laughs> you, know? yeah, you just exactly right. Like just it's respond. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's like what you were saying. It is not understanding what the issue really is.
1: Listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, I'm Jessica Vandenberg, my co-host is George Lee, and our guest is Daryl Lagerquist.
3: I'm just interested to hear um, the Indigenous file generally is, and and any involvement that you have with it there.
0: Yeah, I just want to be clear that I'm not intimately involved in the city's indigenous relations, but I, I will say that it is paramount to all of the city's strategic priorities as it relates to the host nations here in the Lower Mainland. So, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. And I'm working on a, on a project right now within the downtown east side that's looking to bolster safety of some of our community centers. And that is by far the number one lens that we are conducting our work when we look at that is, is how can we provide safety through a lens of decolonization? When, when we're used to community safety or whatever, you think of a police officer, or security guard, and who knows the history that's tied to seeing someone in uniform with, you know, for an indigenous person. And so that's, that's paramount to some of the work that we're doing and thinking about how services provided to community members in the downtown east side consider that and and remove aspects of colonization and I'm not the expert here right I'm just kind of championing the process and really there's we have a great team that basically sees the epicenter of some of the end result of you know centuries of trauma it's just it's very positive to have that top down approach from our elected leaders, as well as our public service leaders here at the city. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think that's so important, this idea of safety, because I know Daryl, you and I have had a lot of conversations around what goes into building a strong community. What does that look like? What are the aspects that uh, go into building this? But the heart of a truly vibrant and healthy community is this sense of belonging. And part Mm -hmm. of that is being safe, right? Yes. Being able to live your life with ease, being healthy, being balanced, um, but this idea of belonging. And again, that goes back to this idea of reconciliation. What is it? A uh, feeling of belonging. You feel yeah. like you belong in all the worlds that we walk in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the other great thing about uh, the unceded territories, and which is primarily found mostly in, in BC, and granted, I, I'm not so intimate on knowledge in Eastern Canada, But by and large, kind of from I believe Quebec City west until you hit BC, it's numbered treaties and a lot of things governing that relationship with the crown. But in the lower mainland and in a lot of BC where it's been unceded, and there's certainly different treaties, modern day treaties that have been developed. But because of those communities, those nations not ceding their land, you you do see great activism from communities and and leadership and asserting sovereignty that. I'm still just getting to learn. You know, my experience isn't... I've only been here in Vancouver for just under a year now. And so it's still very elementary at this stage. But it's its very exciting to see from even an economic sovereignty perspective, just to see the differences across the country. I, I, I'm very excited, actually, for the... Hopefully, for the, the space and, and time my kids grow up. I don't have them yet, but... <laughs>
1: So, Daryl, it's been a pleasure hosting you today. It's always great to catch up with you. I think um, we'll just end in a bit of a circle here. So, I'll call you first, Daryl, and then George, and then I'll see myself last. But, uh, Daryl, I see you in circle. Please go ahead and share your final thoughts.
0: Thank you, Jessica, and thank you, George. Um, It has been just a great conversation with both of you, and um, I just really appreciate the space and time, you know, from kind of like an esoteric even spot right now. And I think it's been a bit of whirlwind of emotions this past year and certainly even in our conversation today. And I just want to acknowledge that that the journey is contained with a multitude of, of emotions. And I'm just completely humbled to be on the call um, with you guys today on the podcast and I, I wish you well in, in your journeys. And I, I would love to um, you know speak with you again, either on the podcast or otherwise, because I have so much learning to do still. And I think we learn when we hear each other's experiences and everyone's story. I think that that's a, a very impactful thing on, on your own personal journey. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you so much, Daryl. George, I see you next in circle. Go ahead, please.
3: Daryl, to see someone as early in your career to, to have the insights that you've gained so far. And that just speaks volumes to what the future of, of, of our country must be. And I feel so privileged to be able to talk to not only you, but Jessica every time we, we do these podcasts and all the other people we bring on it. I feel like I've been blessed with a real easy out when it comes to, to one of my truth and conciliation responsibilities is I get to do this and I get to learn from people and get to ask stupid questions. And hear what people have to say. And uh, anyway, just a real heartfelt thank you for for joining us.
1: Thanks, George. And just to see myself last in circle, I always appreciate so much the conversations I've had over the years and those that support and those that take the time to listen and learn. And I know both yourself, George, and and Daryl, um, I would consider both of you very strong allies and supports for me. And, and that just warms my heart that we were able to have this conversation with you on this podcast. And I just want to end with thinking that all the recoveries that are happening, all the people walking with grief and with death uh, that came in ways that weren't natural at the hands of others. Like that is at the heart of what really keeps me motivated and going is, is how much hurt there is that still needs to be healed. But it's through little gestures every day that we can bring about healing for uh, ourselves and, and find ways to walk together with each other, and and that's what gives me hope. I'm always hopeful um, from these conversations that um, there's so many people who are walking in good ways, and so um, I hope both of you walk in a good way today. Thank you. And thanks again.
2: Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation is a production of Features West Studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, a city located on Treaty 6 and Métis Zone 4 lands. Co-hosts Jessica Vandenberg of the Ta First Nation and me, a settler named George Lee. Music written and performed by Kevin John of the Cayucet Checklist at First Nation on Vancouver Island. Logo conceived and designed by Corrine Riedel, sandy brown van dam many thanks to our guest this time daryl loggerquist of vancouver which is located on the unceded territory of the musqueam squamish and tsleil with peoples you can find us in the major podcast directories and some of the minor ones too we've also got a facebook page and an instagram account so you know like us review us share us and all that stuff this episode wraps up season two for us season three kicks off on friday september 30th that's canada's national day for truth and reconciliation and it's also orange shirt day which has a provenance all its own that should not be overshadowed so google it or keep listening or both bye for now